0: New York ain't New York
1: anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine.
0: America's only lifelong bachelor president, number 15, has had whispers about his relationship with the bachelor vice president, number 13, for almost two centuries. But were they more than just political allies? More than roommates? And why do such questions matter in the year 2021? Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iArt Radio. And a special tip of the hat to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. I hope you will subscribe there at that YouTube channel for more trips into the past like this. I try to produce them up with some visuals, give you a feel for the period that we will be discussing. Plus, you can read my columns at The Washington Times to get my analysis of current events through the lens of history and all these books that you can see behind me. I've really read them, and I've learned a thing or two in there. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the pre-Civil War period, and we delve into the personal lives of James Buchanan and his roommate, William Rufus Devane King, They were a pair who were the target of snickering and insults throughout their career. And more recently, they've been cause for celebration. I've always liked Buchanan. I'm really excited about today's guest and his book. The guest is Ph.D. and Professor Thomas Balsersky. He brings us Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. Tom is a presidential and political historian at Eastern Connecticut State University, as well as a contributor for CNN, NBC Connecticut, and Made by History. That's the Washington Post's history blog. He's also a Jersey boy like me, and by the way, he earned his Ph.D. at Cornell University. You can find him on social media at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, You can find me on all of those as well, and I will link to Tom's pages right on the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. I encourage you to go follow him. He's somebody who's very active, always interesting, funny, and you'll just have a great time looking at his Twitter feed. Okay, now that we've arrived back at the U.S. Capitol, as Civil War clouds loom, let's go deep into the relationship of James Buchanan and William King two bosom friends and here we are with professor and phd thomas balcerski he's going to chat with us about his book bosom friends the intimate world of james buchanan and william rufus king i've been looking forward to this thanks so much for joining us today on the history author show thank you dean this guy james buchanan i will admit he He's gotten under my skin at some point. I don't mean in a bad way to him, but he's a fascinating, tragic figure and an example of what happens when you just don't get the breaks in timing and why timing is so important in politics and in life. He's a rather obscure guy. He's reduced to the really bumbler who came before Abraham Lincoln in the history books. Nobody ever wants to come before a great like Lincoln. It's like being the opening band for the Rolling Stones. That is his lot to be the guy that let the union fall apart, preceded by the guy who saved the union and then is martyred by John Wilkes Booth. And of course, we see him on money. Nobody's putting poor James Buchanan on the $5 bill, the penny, anything. So how do you go about making this a compelling story about capturing listeners and say no not only is james buchanan interesting to learn about even though he is at the bottom of those presidential rankings the very bottom but this relationship he had it'll tell us something about us as americans today so how do you go about that mission when you decide to write bosom friends
1: it's an excellent question dean and i think you hit the nail on the head by comparing him to abraham lincoln i mean um I, I see a number of books behind you. I don't know how many pertain to Lincoln, but I would guess quite a few. Um, Abraham Lincoln is perhaps the most written about of American presidents as we, as we scan now. Everyone's like, wait, there's gotta be one. Uh, right up there with George Washington, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, even some of our more recent presidents he outshines. And it, it, shows, it shows in such things as the C-SPAN presidential survey, which I was one of the participants in, it shows in ways uh, large and small. And in the case of Buchanan, to have the unlucky fate to precede Abraham Lincoln, uh, it's really drawing the short end of the stick. And I should point out, you know, his Lincoln successor, Andrew Johnson, has been equally uh, treated by history in unkind terms. Now, Both Buchanan and Johnson, of course, I focus on Buchanan, both of them deserve a lot of the criticism that has come their way. This is not to say that it's been unfair uh, or even overly harsh. It's to say that the standards by which we judge James Buchanan um, very much depend on the standard which we judge Abraham Lincoln. So the two are equal and opposite, polar opposite figures. So I think one way to interest someone into the life of James Buchanan, why we should know about him, is it really tells us why we still to this day Truly venerate Abraham Lincoln as a president. So understanding the failure of one president helps us to understand the success of another. It's putting a mirror up to them, and
0: you were so right about that. Saying it is true that Johnson and Buchanan both do—they're both the pieces of of kind of uh, stale bread. (laughs) I don't know, not really great in this Lincoln sandwich. But yes, they earn a lot of it. But some things that they earn is just because they are held up as the greatness of Lincoln. And in Johnson's case and Buchanan, it's unfair in the sense that Lincoln, for one thing, nobody knows how he would have dealt with reconstruction. It's hard to imagine he would have been worse than Johnson, of course, but also that for Buchanan, he has the, he has the, the whole country that he has to deal with there in Congress. He has a much harder road to hold than Lincoln. Lincoln comes in, and imagine you're a president who comes in and the entire opposition party, in Lincoln's case, all the Democrats, except your Andrew Johnson that you mentioned, they all leave Congress. So, well, hey, now I can pass exactly whatever I want. And Buchanan doesn't have that option. So, and, and we don't know what he would have done or what he would have passed, but it, it's certainly very interesting that you – you're willing to compare him to them, but also be fair. And I I love that perspective of both of these men who are so obscure and, and forgotten. And when they are talked about are just derided.
1: Yeah. And just on the point about the second uh, person on the dance card there, William Rufus King is in the vice presidential sort of rankings. If we wanted to construct him is similarly down in the dumps for a number of reasons, primarily of which is he didn't live very long. (laughs) He He was the uh, not as I want to be careful here because I've actually been corrected up by someone on this. Not the shortest serving vice president, because if you actually look at the two vice presidents who became president, Johnson being Wad and Tyler being the other, Hmm. they actually had shorter terms in office before their accession to the presidency. So that actually makes it the third shortest serving. I've been saying all along the shortest serving, but I guess on the technicality. But th- because of that, and of course, because of his obscurity more generally, and this I think uh, puts him into the category of other anti-Bellum politicians, and particularly those from the South, those who were slaveholders from the South, uh, he's been more or less discarded to the dustbin of history as well. Bad luck also
0: for William Rufus King. He is sworn in in Cuba. He's there because he's dying for, he's there for his health. He never serves. As you mentioned, this guy is reduced to just a trivial pursuit answer. If you can even call him that, right? You may, you get a, you definitely get a piece of pie. If you remember anything about him at all in his life. The only time we've heard about him recently is in Seattle, King County. They did something I thought was really clever because it saved them money. They wanted to change his name because he was a slaveholder, but they decided to say, now it's named after Martin Luther King. That's saved. You didn't have to change your stationery as much. But other than that, you you don't really hear about him. So I'd like you to introduce us to him, this man who is, despite that technicality, a very short-lived vice president, never really gets to do anything, and vice presidents don't get to do much anyway. Very sad, end to all the ambition that he has inside him. So introduce us to this man who ends up being roommates with the other man on your cover, Pennsylvanian James Buchanan.
1: Yeah, that's right. William Rufus King is uh, perhaps the longest serving senator to that point. Uh, And again, I can add to every sentence of mine that you've never heard of. Um, He was actually first elected as the very first of the United States senators from the new state of Alabama in the year 1819. And he serves continuously until his appointment as minister to France in 1844, putting it at that point, as I said, a record 34 years Uh, nearly in in the United States Senate. Um, He then, after his term as minister to France, will return and attempt to regain his seat in the Senate, and he does, and he actually uh, returns to the Senate therefore in 1848 and stays until his election as vice president. So if you add those four years to the previous 34, it's almost 38 plus years in the Senate uh, from a state that uh, that you know really was defined by his presence, by his politics. And, and the inter- there's an interesting story to how Alabama state politics operates and how King came to be the leader of one of the factions in Alabama. Another thing to say about him then is that he comes from North Carolina originally. King is born in the Piedmont region of North Carolina and, and in and around what is today present day Fayetteville. So therefore he attends the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for his college training. Doesn't actually finish the four years Uh, but nevertheless uh, is an educated man, will then read the law as was common at that time, and will seek political office following in some ways in the footsteps of his father in addition to pursuing agricultural pursuits, which did require him to own large numbers of slaves to work the land, first in North Carolina and eventually around Selma, Alabama. And, you know, your point about a second king, I mean, it's interesting to say that there's really therefore two major figures named king with a history in Selma, Alabama, the same two we've already mentioned uh, for very different reasons.
0: It's something when you talk about the long career that he had, and I think Buchanan, too. Here he's head of one of the parties back then. It's the age of the party boss is growing. So much time, so many decades of service in Washington, D.C., and it's something when I look at history, I say it's, it's really a strange thing that sometimes the guys with the longest resume and the most experience end up being in their cases at the bottom of the list end up flaming out spectacularly when we would think that having all that experience, well, it's, it has to mean that you'll be the Lincoln. Meanwhile, Lincoln is this this little nobody with a term in Congress. He spends a little time in Congress, but not much. Loses his Senate race, and he ends up being the guy in the five. You have to feel for them that way. That's why I take up for them. I'm, I guess I'm a soft-hearted guy. I feel bad that they've they've been just so forgotten because they tried and they brought a
1: resume in there that you would have thought they would be able to meet any challenge. Well, there was a phrase used recently uh, in the presidential election of 2016 about then candidate Hillary Clinton, and she was the most prepared person to, to, to run for president, and, and that that term came from it's it's kind of a common phrase. It's been used by a number of people. But part of it was her training, her her period as Secretary of State under President Obama, and with James Buchanan, his period his term as Secretary of State under President Polk gave him that similar background. Now, Buchanan also emerges out of the Senate. Before that, he had been in the House of Representatives, similar to King. So the so the two men had terms in the House, the Senate, and then in the case of Buchanan as Secretary of State. Um, He's considered a presidential nominee multiple times, but is only nominated by his party, the Democratic Party, once. So when he does run in 1856, at age 65, the second oldest president to run, uh, excluding George Washington, he is this sort of senior statesman of the nation who has been around, who has uh, done every office you could think of. He had also been a minister to England and minister to Russia in his career. So he he was an international presence he was thought to be maybe a calming presence. And in that very close election of 1856, which featured a Republican candidate, a sectional Northern candidate, John C. Fremont, uh, Buchanan's victory portended that the the union would stick together for another four years.
0: You mentioned James K. Polk, and you set me up nicely. I had showed you that some of my presidential flair here is a Wheaton bottle from in my home state of New Jersey. The first dark horse is the, is what it says on the back. Each one has a little something. James Buchanan is up in my attic. But I thought this, this reminds you, they, they all have their own bottle, right? Washington has a couple, Lincoln has a couple, but that he was a real president. He wasn't just somebody that's left on that list. And he was a real secretary of state for a very significant president, James K. Polk, that if you were like Ulysses S. Grant and you opposed the Mexican war, you still... I have to admit that that was very significant all the foreign policy successes they had they managed to avoid war with England and settle that boundary dispute in the in the great Northwest of the United States and they they add Texas they add all of those territories that are in the southwest and that that part of his career is is really, the reason that he does get that nomination, that he is looked at as a figure who can do the job and that can keep the country together after the Franklin Pierce years as president.
1: Yeah, and just a couple of fun little notes on that. You mentioned Grant. Well, Grant, in his very first presidential election in which he voted, uh, voted for James Buchanan. He still voted the Democratic ticket at that point. That's an ironic uh, stance given what comes later. And in terms of Buchanan's connection to the office of Secretary of State, it's it's really... Um, in some ways, partly his undoing during his presidency to a degree. I mean, he, he really wanted to run the State Department for himself during his own presidency, and he picked weak and servile sort of uh, cabinet officers to support it. For, for the Secretary of State, he picked a very aging statesman who was well past his prime and Lewis Cass, who had also been a, a nominee for the Democratic Party himself with the very intention that he wanted to sort of be his own sort of chief diplomat. And he was considered again for secretary of state when Pierce did win the nomination in 1852, uh, rather the election, I should say. And he he instead uh, passed, was passed up for it and was made minister to England, which was going to be a, a very significant post given some of the tensions actually that flared up during the 1850s, including culminating really in the Ostend Manifesto over uh, the, the question of Cuba's future and sovereignty. So the posts that Buchanan had Uh, from between his term as secretary of state through his own candidacy was very much foreign policy based. And I think one of the things to say is he actually hoped as president to use foreign policy to quell the domestic discord. And we, we talk about a little bit about the importance of conquest and manifest destiny, something he learned from Hulk. He hoped to replicate that very magic in the conquest of Cuba. And it was Buchanan's undying wish to bring Cuba in as a a territory of the United States. And of course, that they would be a slave holding territory. He really felt that that could help to balance the scales that had been unbalanced by the compromise of 1850 that brought us California and changed the sectional balance uh, around where new slave states and new free states would be admitted. We mentioned Ulysses S. Grant.
0: So if we're gonna talk about President Grant, I will jump ahead to my question from author Louis Pacone. Lewis is a presidential historian I've had on three times. His books, Where the Presidents Were Born and The President is Dead, are great bookends for their lives. And most recently, I interviewed him about his book, Grant's Tomb, The Epic Death of Ulysses S. Grant, and The Making of an American Pantheon. So let's go to that. He submitted it as a video question, which I'll be honest with everybody, I didn't have the heart to tell Lewis, but... I was too embarrassed, but he thought to send it as a video question. I just thought he was going to send me a written question, but he was so kind to send me this video question, which I wouldn't have imposed upon him for, because I know he's a busy guy as a presidential historian. So let's go here. Let me play his question and then get your reaction to it.
1: Hi, Tom. Congratulations on your book. My question to you was about James Buchanan's personal papers. Now, reportedly, James Buchanan had written a letter during his lifetime explaining why he never chose to marry. With the intentions of his family reading that letter after he died. But instead on his deathbed, James Buchanan had a change of heart and had the letter destroyed. So my question to you is first, what sort of information do you think that that letter contained? And second, why do you think James Buchanan chose to have that letter destroyed instead of being read by his family and by historians? Thank you, Lewis, for that question. And I'm also a fan of your books, so it really means a lot that you uh you gave it a question like that. It's a two part question, I think. Uh, it gets to motivation that Buchanan had at the end of his life, which is, I think, difficult to really know uh, for any of us. Uh, but uh, but secondarily about what the letter might have contained, that that's more spe- speculation. We have a, a sense of what the letter uh, pertained to because there's another letter that does survive where Buchanan is basically describing what's in the contents of the letter and what he, th- thought at that point would be revealed by it. It has, of course, to do with another episode that makes Buchanan famous, infamous perhaps, uh, as our only bachelor president. And the letter in question has to do with his relationship with his fiance turned ex-fiance, Anne Coleman of Lancaster to whom he was briefly engaged in the year 1819. Now the letter it's unclear again when it was written exactly probably closer to the the end of the engagement where he might have laid out therefore in in that moment the reasons for the end of the engagement Uh, so we don't know if it was addressed to uh, someone or if it was more of an account there is a letter that does survive in the buchanan papers that may have been sent and may have been returned and may never have been read to anne's father robert coleman and it's written right after Anne's untimely death in December of 1819, where Buchanan requests to be able to accompany the funeral procession of his now deceased daughter. Uh, again, we, we know he didn't end up doing so. We're not sure if, if the letter was ever sent or received or what. It does survive among Buchanan's papers. So, this, dis- this destroyed letter, this one incident, this, and it is really the one time that we know for sure that a paper was purposely destroyed by, B- by Buchanan's own desires. Certainly bore on that topic. Again, the question of motivation I think is fascinating and it, it looks, it, I think it looks towards what Buchanan was hoping to accomplish in his final years. We've already discussed how, following uh, the election of Abraham Lincoln, this the four years of the Civil War, Buchanan leaves office in disgrace and spends those four years of the Civil War. Uh, really in exile as a political figure within the nation and even among his own Democratic Party. But he took on a project in those same four years to try to rehabilitate himself and his image and famously writes what is considered the first of the presidential memoir, Mr. Buchanan's Administration on the Eve of Rebellion. It's written in the third person, uh, but it is essentially his own handwritten account um, that he saw published at the end of the war. So he waited until the year 1865 to see it published. He does die three years later in 1868, and he he is declining in health in those final years. So here he is now in those final years, having sort of made his legacy about his performance as president. And I think, if I could guess, he comes to realize that that is how he wants to be sort of finally known and that his papers would eventually be a research aid and would eventually be published, but that when it came to the question of his personal life, he perhaps feared that it could be held against him down the road. And I've been able to reconstruct as best as possible uh, the relationship and the reason that it isn't ended without that letter. So there was enough surviving evidence to help us understand this uh, bachelor and his uh, failed engagement to to Ann Coleman. But it would have been nice, of course, as a historian to have it and to have just another piece of evidence in Buchanan's own words.
0: Worth noting also that back then it was common to burn your letters. And I, I'm thinking as you speak there that that sounds so dramatic, right? Today, sure, we just hit a delete. We never go and burn a letter, really, unless we're really spiteful and angry or something weird happens that we say, I hate this letter. It, I can't imagine even throwing it in a fire. You do that in a, in a movie. But I think maybe that makes us think it's even more sinister that he, when we, we think about him burning his letter. But he already had lived a full public life, hadn't he? And his relationship with Rufus King, Rufus King dies I'm sorry, William King dies way before him, so it wasn't as if, even though that's what we want to think was in that letter, we we don't know exactly what was in there. So I, I kind of caution myself against thinking this is the Rosetta Stone. This is like in Young Frankenstein, right? How I did it. He finds his grandfather's <laughs> he finds his grandfather's memoir, the how-to book, basically of how to create the Frankenstein monster.
1: Yeah, no, you're you're getting to really ultimately why my book was written, essentially why I took it on as the project is that the relationship between James Buchanan and William Rufus King today has come into focus. And it's come into focus for what it could have signified both in its own time and and I would argue to us today. And in the process, we're dealing with all the possibilities therefore from you know what I would call an intimate male friendship, which I think it, it fits the category of, to a romantic or sexual relationship. And as we envision that now as a possibility in the 21st century, we still have to deal with the perhaps for that thesis inconvenient uh, remaining evidence around their romantic entanglements with women during their own lifetimes certainly buchanan's romantic engagements were many more and better documented with ann coleman being the most well documented of them all but he had flirtations and half serious courtships throughout his life i would say by comparison, William Rufus King, whose archival record is smaller and, and unfortunately who, whose papers we know have been partially lost to history. Um, he never engaged by comparison in a romantic pursuit that that yielded any kind of engagement or anything serious towards marriage. In fact, he laments it in a kind of uh, fun almost way to his niece about having once loved a Russian czarina while he was there. And again, sort of, out of sight, out of mind. No one there, sort of, to witness it. But he could claim it. So, I think that's the sort of the problematic evidence that would be sort of glossed over if you wanted to suggest, as the question could have been posed, though it wasn't, to be fair, uh, that that letter must therefore have contained some revealing uh, information about his sexuality or about his attraction towards women, or in some way revealed. Uh, to your point, the Rosetta Stone, that really tells us why he never married. No, I don't think so. I think it was Buchanan's own recounting of the failed courtship and the reasons why it did not work.
0: To fill in those blanks and to ask those questions, I think that this is fascinating and noteworthy because for me, as somebody who loves writing, loves words, when you ask a question, or even when you enter a room, there's a thousand ways to enter a room and tell you something about the person that's entering the room. If you're writing a character in fiction, And for these two men, when people ask that question, well, were they in a same-sex relationship? Were they just very close bosom friends, to say the title of your book, Bosom Friends? It depends on who's asking. Some people were political foes asking. Some people would have just hated that and said, well, here you go. This is why he lost the Civil War, because of his his personal life. And that's why I always remind people here of James K. Polk, if if they might think of that. I say, well... Gosh, he unfortunately was was very likely uh impotent. Yes. And so he, he he was uh he had to have a horrible operation. If people want to read his, his bio on that, how they dealt with things like bladder stones back then, but it was very, very cruel and unfortunately left him impotent. Okay, and if you had a gay secretary of state, well. If you, if you think that that changes how things were, these two guys were clearly able to still execute foreign policy that realized Manifest Destiny. Again, whatever we think of the issue of it, they still were capable of that. And So to me, I find it fascinating that that this question of what was the nature of their relationship changes based on who's asking the question and why. So for you, what prompted you to say, I want to dig into the archives and I want to I want to give an answer that's beyond this century and a half of snickering and innuendo. Why write Bosom Friends? Why try to track it down from this solid historical perspective without the bias that people often have asked that question over the last 150
1: years? Well, oh, that's, that's really well said, Dean. I would say that, the, that those same 150 years have seen varying degrees of gossip and innuendo merging and really transforming into sort of outright accusation. And to the point I would say now of just broad acceptance that J- James Buchanan was gay and you'll find it everywhere. I mean, the internet has really enabled wonderful amounts of research, communication, uh, and communication easy, and easy access to all sorts of things. And it's also allowed anyone with an opinion and a, a site to say that opinion, to state it and to make it sound like it's a true fact. Um, and even if there are those who don't necessarily have um, the same evidentiary standard as I do as a professional historian, for them to then think of James Buchanan as our first gay president isn't always a bad thing. And that's kind of where I've also been wrestling with, this idea that is it productive to imagine Buchanan in this, in this way, uh, for him to even be embraced by some members, say, of the LGBTQ community. Um, I think so. I think if it brings interest to any historical figure, if questions are asked, if, if the the answers are sought by way of research, then I think you've engaged in something worthwhile. That's essentially, you might say, the purpose of the book. It's to to engage a scholarly pursuit into the nature of the relationship of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. My conclusion, as I offer in the front, is somewhat ambiguous as to the, the standards we would impose on them today. But of the two, it certainly seems to me that William Rufus King was greater and more deeply attracted to Buchanan then vice versa. In fact, one of the themes I develop in the book is the ways that Buchanan saw King in an instrumental kind of mode. The friendship was to what could I achieve politically through this connection with King? Whereas with King, we see a very personal heartfelt longing at various points during their friendship. And it didn't seem to be necessarily always about the politics, although it could at times, particularly when the two men the end of their lives were pitted directly against one another, but it seemed like we had sort of a kind of a one-way attraction, Uh, and the thing that makes me wonder about Buchanan knowing how shrewd he is and knowing how savvy a political operator he was, might Buchanan have known about this attraction from William Rufus King towards him and used it to his benefit?
0: You mentioned something there that reminded me of the presidential grub, as Abraham Lincoln called it, that bores into your head And again, look how many things that we we quote Lincoln for and think of Lincoln for. Nobody out there is walking around except you, maybe, and me occasionally, maybe, something about James Buchanan. But Lincoln said so many memorable things, and we use them all the time. One of them was this idea that once that grub starts boring into your head, you're going to do anything to become president. And James Buchanan certainly had what we today call the fire in the belly for getting to the nation's highest office. He tried, he tried, he tried again. And when somebody is on that route to success, climbing that ladder, they often use the people that are coming up along the way. And you hinted at that there in his relationship with King, that he was looking at him saying, well, here's a Southern Senator. Here's a guy from a region that I'm not connected to. I'm up here in Philadelphia, just in Philadelphia, trying to deal with all these different factions. Hey, I could be friends with this guy. He doesn't have a family. I don't have a family. We're both Democrats, but from different factions. So what do we learn in Bosom Friends about how the 15th president treated King? Was he a better friend to him than he should have been or not as good a friend as he should have been across
1: their long life together and their time living together? It gets to the nature of male friendship itself and how Buchanan utilized friendships among political men in his own lifetime. Um, He was a a voluminous correspondent, he would write, I mean, I've been able to sort of put put together James Buchanan's daily uh, writing schedule, he would write a dozen or more letters a day, and and sometimes the content would be the same, you could find on any given day, sort of the same expressions and news. But one of the things Buchanan did with his correspondence was to sort of cultivate those friendships, and he could write in a way that made you feel almost included and part of his world. And he would talk about the intimate attachments. And that word intimacy, by the way, comes up again and again. And he would use sort of certain techniques in his correspondence to try to build that intimacy across space and time. Now in Pennsylvania, Lancaster is hometown and he's got connections all around the state. He was constantly traveling to whether Philadelphia or Harrisburg, even Pittsburgh, to try to build those connections and to build that rapport. Now, Lincoln famously uh, is able to do so in the, the, the world of a circuit lawyer and he means traveling from town to town, city to city, staying in taverns. This would often be the kind of domestic space that, that brought political men together in the frontier. In Pennsylvania, it's a little bit different because there's more sort of easy travel to and from, a little bit more civilized by the standards of the day. Uh, so it's, it's somewhat different, uh, a sort of less sort of um, domestically intimate world than, say, what Lincoln had in the frontier. But in Washington, D.C., sort of that's where the playing field was made even. Washington, D.C., particularly in the early years where Buchanan arrived in the aftermath of the War of 1812, was a city that was recovering, it was a city that was still very much tenuous and trying to make a comeback uh, from this devastation that was wrought in 1814. So the boarding houses were the only real places to stay. There weren't even good hotels yet. So King and Buchanan were in this moment where you had to live together, where you had to share the same roof as congressmen. And it was very common to have a large boarding house with a dozen or more congressmen and other people from other walks of life. In the Senate in the 1830s though, King and Buchanan built a smaller boarding house, usually with just two or three other men, And because of uh, reasons that I think have a lot to do with personal preference, they really sought out self-consciously other bachelors. And so in that way, the bachelor identity became the thing that united them. And for Buchanan, he was always very close with other bachelors, with other unmarried men. In addition to, of course, Uh, friends who were married and among the married individuals he was close with are some of the great names of American history, some of the great political families. He was very close, for example, with the Blair family, uh, which has a generation of political uh, luminaries that become Republican and one of them is Lincoln's uh, postmaster general, right? Um, So it just seems to me that he knew how to play the game. He knew how to work with both men and women. Uh, and it, it meant sometimes putting professions of emotion and attachment out there. And other times it meant being calculated enough to know which individual, from which party would be the one to kind of to go after and to build those connections. And I think with King, he had found a really important um, counterpart. You're enjoying my conversation with Professor Thomas
0: Balsersky. He's the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan* and William Rufus King. Follow him at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find all those accounts linked at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. Michael E. Woods of the Alabama Review writes of Bosom Friends, quote, by situating the deep bond between these two 19th century Democrats within its social, cultural, and political context, Walserski offers fresh insight into both men and illuminates the significance of male friendship in the turbulent world of antebellum politics. Tom, there are a lot of really great reviews for your book, which I congratulate you for getting, because sometimes I, I get a book and I say, well seem like it's getting a lot of buzz out there. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not that good before I open it. Yours certainly has gotten a lot of high praise. People say it's jargon-free, it's enjoyable, well-researched. Those don't always go together, but this is really a book for everybody, not just for fellow academics. So I chose that quote because in the 19th century, men did often have very close relationships, and they would describe them in terms that today to read them, they sound romantic they sound like whoa i shouldn't be reading this 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 might be a love letter just like if you read a love letter between uh, a man and a woman and you say well hey I, i don't know this seems too personal too too private they're really gushing their emotions out but it didn't necessarily always mean that there was a sexual relationship going on so what do the other bromances of this period tell you and what will it tell your readers of bosom
1: friends about the relationship here between these two men well, you use the word bromance, of course, and that's a neologism of our own time, but it, it's very descriptive. Um, we, you know, we're constantly coining new words, finding new meaning for words. And that's a word that has come to really signify the possibilities for male friendship today, and suggest that you know intimate male friendship, to use my phrase, is a universal concept in American history. And it's whether it's 21st century Romantic or 19th century. Uh, of, a, of a different kind, a different stripe, an intimate friendship. Uh, I think what they have in common is that emotional expression between men, particularly in settings where women are not present, where perhaps there's a kind of sense in which uh, there's almost a safety to being among other men, to not have to, to risk yourself. I mean, think of it this way. Um, in the 19th century, same-sex education was was pretty much everywhere. Uh, men were joiners of clubs, political parties, were dominated by men. We call this world homosocial, meaning of one uh, sex or gender here. And this homosocial world is pretty much cradle to grave, or could be. The only time really, therefore, you came into intimate contact, the member of the opposite sex would be through marriage. Uh, And for many, those sexual relations only took place after marriage. So this is a, a very different world in that sense than our own uh, sexually, but it also suggests that, uh, still to this day, we find, uh, men being more comfortable among the presence of other men and and the same is true for women, of course. In fact, I got my idea to really study this homosocial male world because women's historians and gender historians have taught us that women did the same thing through the domestic sphere of the home and across correspondence, as well as women's associations. And it's, when women stepped out into the political sphere that we tend to see sort of notice them in American history and we've paid the most attention to their activities when they sort of emulate their male counterparts in some ways, when we flip the script and and realize that men were in some ways creating a parallel world of domestic intimacy, at least they could in places like Washington DC boarding houses, then I think we have an insight into how politics as well as gender could operate.
0: They, live in that boarding house together. They spend so much time together. And I think that people naturally want to ask those questions, as I mentioned before. And then in their life, I'm not going to let you get away with this one question, or their careers rather, because if you can, and I gave my opinion, but I'm not really here to do that, although I do it all the time. I want to get the learned opinion from you, because here you wrote this book, Bosom Friends, about these men. You begin, Bosom Friends, with a line, and that is in the aftermath of the Civil War, few wish to remember the politics of the prior generation. Well, the two men here on your book cover, you could not be much more in faces of the prior generation's politics. This this book could be called The Democratic Party in the Antebellum United States, and you could put the same two guys on the cover and have that be the cover because they were so prominent. So how much do you think of the dismal standing that James Buchanan gets in those presidential polls. King, I guess we can give him a pass because he dies and we don't know what kind of vice president he would have been. And really, a vice president doesn't do much anyway under the Constitution. So for Buchanan, how much of that do you think is fair, his standing at the very bottom of the presidential polls? And how much of it is just all of these factors we spoke about and the fact that Everybody wants to pretend that, oh, we would have been on Lincoln's side back then, even though, as we well know, half the country was not.
1: Well, it's a fascinating question, and it gets to really what defines the antebellum Democratic Party. And what we've come to, I think, pass judgment on has been, of course, the promotion, defense and expansion of slavery in all the ways possible in the South, in the West And the fulcrum that led to the Civil War can be said to be around territorial expansion, around what to do with the vast remaining territory in what was the Louisiana Purchase, then called Nebraska, and eventually split into the the territories of Kansas and Nebraska. And of course, too, prior to that decision, Ah, this guy's territory, right? All that territorial I mean, expansion. Right? But, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, you could say Polk deserves better ranking than Buchanan. Fine. But that also means that Buchanan's legacy is tied up with a better president because, of course, he's secretary of state. That's what I want to suggest to you. Is, and logically, Buchanan is continuing in so many ways what Polk attempted to do during his presidency. And like Polk, Buchanan comes out there and says, I'm going to be a one term president. He attempts to deflect the nation's attention away from the issue of slavery however he can. And one way he does it a quite uh, spectacularly, in a failing way I should say, is to say this important case that's about to be decided by the United States Supreme Court in Dred Scott is going to decide the issue forever. And of course it does the exact opposite. The Dred Scott case Dred Scott v. Sanford case does it does it does the exact opposite. It, it, it goes too far. Number one, in sort of denying citizenship rights to African Americans, Taney, Roger Tawney, in a gratuitous way makes that claim. And secondarily, of course, um, it suggests that all the politicking of the prior generation, going way back to the Missouri Compromise, was entirely unconstitutional. So if you've got a sort of a system that's imploding, and then Buchanan should be blamed for. I would argue his handling of his successor particularly in the rift with stephen douglas and what could have happened in 1860 to have the united democratic party all those things are fair but if we're actually just judging buchanan as one of the slave holding presidents or sympathetic slave holding presidents then it and then i think we are painting with too broad a brush and and i have to say i think we are doing um if you look at those presidential surveys the bottom quartile includes a majority of presidents before the Civil War, people like Buchanan and Pierce, but even people like Miller Fillmore and Zachary Taylor. Before Polk, we had Van Buren, he as well. So of that bottom group, you've got quite a few between Jackson and Lincoln. And even Jackson, again, Buchanan would consider himself a Jacksonian, as would King. Jackson has fallen in our estimation as well uh, in these same surveys. And again, here has to do with his uh, policies as president around Native American removal in the Southeast, as well as his support for the uh, institution of slavery um, and its expansion. So it's, it's to say that the, the standards are changing by which we judge presidents in the United States, but even as they change, what's interesting to me is how Buchanan still ranks at the, at the very bottom. It doesn't seem to be a way uh, to improve upon Buchanan's reputation, even as I would argue by comparison to some of the the other presidents he deserves to be higher. He's stuck
0: down there. He would have been very easy for you to ignore as an academic, but instead you visited countless, I think, what is it? 21 libraries that you visited and archives and states, as well as the British library. We mentioned his time there in, as in foreign policy, being in London, being secretary of state, being minister, I guess, was he to London for, for a period? And so we occasionally hear about him and it's always to be the put down, right? And one of the things you mentioned slaveholding presidents, his name was taken off a school recently and they lump him in with as a slaveholding president. I've seen this done with Ulysses S. Grant too. You mentioned that link between them when we mentioned Louis Bacone's book. For Grant, he was given a human being from his father-in-law. He was, came from a slaveholding, or his wife rather came from a slaveholding family. He wanted to get rid of that. He didn't, he didn't want to have slaves himself worked side by side with them for which he was mocked much the way that that Buchanan was mocked in his lifetime, but he frees that man. And for Grant, it was equivalent of freeing uh, or giving away your house, giving away a big, huge asset. He could have sold this man that they tell him he could have sold. And he chooses instead to free him when, when he's able. So I don't think you count that the same way you count somebody like Jackson or somebody like James K. Polk who's buying and selling human beings in the white house for Buchanan. He, buys these two slaves and he frees them. And so I, I don't think that lands him in, in either the section of Grant, who is somebody who, whoa, hey, you gave me a slave, I'm going to free the person, which I think any of us today would do. We wouldn't want to be considered a slaveholder if you we were given a slave in one of the countries where slavery still exists and immediately freed them or freed them as soon as was possible. But he's also not somebody who had a plantation full of slaves and was ruling by the lash. Where does Buchanan fall and what does why he ends up purchasing these two women and giving them their freedom. Tell us about him as a
1: savvy politician, the guy we meet here in bosom friends. Yeah. Oh, that's really rich Dean, because um, actually the history of Buchanan's slave ownership is everything to do with his connections to members of his extended family and members of his family lived in slaveholding Maryland. Now, the laws for manumission, to use the term, that allowed for ultimately the freedom to be given to enslaved African-Americans in a state like Pennsylvania had provisions for those born in Pennsylvania, whether born into slavery or born of slaves, not the so with anyone who might travel, say, from out of state like Maryland into Pennsylvania. So for Buchanan to actually go out of his way, we might argue, to See to the freedom of two enslaved people who were then owned by one of his relatives, but really by in laws um, to his sister, really suggests that he was in some way engaged in um, reputation monitoring. He wanted to not be associated with the institution at that point. He had previously, though, come from a family that, in fact, did own slaves, and his father, James Buchanan Sr., was a slaveholder. James Jr., our president, grew up around slaves and with enslaved labor, which was which was legal under the law. It wasn't, again, in a plantation. It wasn't of the, the classic sort of anti slavery we see further south, but Pennsylvania was a place that commonly had domestic uh, slavery. And in his own lifetime, Buchanan will employ numerous, I mean, the dozens i would say of domestic servants to use a term different from slaves these are free people who are under labor contract to uh really their employer and in the case of daphne and ann cook these two enslaved women one a mother one a daughter that buchanan basically uses an indenture process under the pennsylvania manumission law to free them he intended, we think, to therefore bring them to Pennsylvania into his own household staff, where they would be treated like other uh, indentured, perhaps, or uh, other paid servants. Sadly, in the case of the the mother-daughter team, the daughter dies, and the mother, in fact, then runs away. And Buchanan writes this on the back of of this uh, of a note about their about these two women, a mother and a daughter. So we actually don't know what happens. We don't know. You know, have the side of the stories we often don't in history of the enslaved or of uh, those under servitude. And in this case, we just don't know. Um, but the best way I can sort of read it is that Buchanan was comfortable around enslaved people. He certainly was, was as comfortable as, as the next person, you might say. He didn't, uh, it would seem, have the same respect, therefore, for African-Americans as other Northerners. He came from a kind of a, a world in which um, class mattered and he seemed to uphold these class divisions in his lifetime. But he is also very religiously tolerant. I mean, he, he was not a nativist, for example, and he um, was very proud of his, of his Irish background as well. Um, so he had a kind of complicated relationship to these questions of race and ethnicity during his own lifetime. But you know, by, by our standards today, is, is James Buchanan a slaveholder is James Buchanan a racist? I mean, if we answer those questions, just yes, yes. There's, I mean, there's no debate. The, the name comes off the school and that's it. Um, if we wanna have a conversation about the nature of unfree labor, about how Buchanan engaged in it why, his name still may come off the school. Um, but what's interesting is that's the reason today that, that his name was removed from one school, not his failures as president, not his protection of, this, of the slave system, not certainly, any of the other views which have been a lot longer known. So I, I think it's just it's a fascinating moment for historians to have this conversation with the general public.
0: That was his home in Wheatland, I assume. And I assume that's one of the places you went to do your research. I that's a beautiful place to go. I've gone there, I've taken the tour. And for such an obscure president and for such a disrespected president, it really is. Again, I take up for the guy. I feel like even though all these flaws, all these mistakes, as a human being, he would have been very gracious and nice. And so I, I feel bad that he's just been stomped under a boot. And if we want to condemn him, at least condemn him for the things he actually did, not for the things he didn't. But give a give a word for Wheatland there. Would you recommend that in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lancaster
1: County? Oh, of course. I mean, President James Buchanan's Wheatland is a federal style home. It's a mansion. And it survives to this day through, um, you know, as with so many historic homes, just fortuitous uh, passage of ownership and, and, so many of the artifacts that were preserved were because subsequent owners understood of the historic value of the home. So it wasn't until the 20th century into the 1930s that the foundation is set into place to preserve the house. So in that sense, it's actually on the early side of historic preservation. So there's no risk, therefore, of um, the kinds of destruction that has sadly happened to so many houses. It's preserved. It's kept Uh, safe. It's brought up to modern standards and code. And therefore, today, the interpretation that happens at President James Buchanan's Wheatland is top-notch. There's historic interpreters in period costume who attempt to tell the story of Buchanan's life, his rise to power, his presidency, and his his post-presidency, where he spent his years at the estate. Next door in the Lancaster County Historical Society, Lancaster History, as it's called, is the archive, containing so many of James Buchanan's letters, Personal effects, including uh, prominently his carriage, which is this huge, you know, uh, well-constructed vehicle that is uh, set up on a on a, a riser in, in the uh, main atrium there. So, between James Buchanan's Wheatland, the Lancaster History Library and Research Center, as and of course many other repositories like the Library of Congress in Washington D.C., the Historical Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Yeah, one can get a sense of who he was. His letters are everywhere. I didn't go to 21 states, the District of Columbia and the British Library because there was nothing there. He shows up in practically every catalog, every card catalog has has an index for him. He was a US president. He will continue to be an important, I think, source for historians who want to understand the democratic party, the antebellum period. And ultimately, again, the more we reflect upon his failures the better we understand Lincoln's greatness. I don't want to let King out of that conversation about slavery
0: because I'm thinking about their relationship in the context of Bosom Friends, and I encourage people if they want to get an idea of what Lincoln faced or what the world was like before then to pick it up because here you have two ultimate politicians, and they're dealing with this really thorny issue and yes they're they're in the same political party in name but the party is very fractured they're from different regions and as we know the whole idea of states being so different is going to come up and be a problem in about a minute so gives you an idea guy from alabama guy from pennsylvania both democrats but you have these huge issues you mentioned millard fillmore who i agree does not get his credit for the compromise of 1850 and being thrust into the presidency even though he really wasn't connected at all to Zachary Taylor and the administration. So he helps to get that done, put off the civil war 10 years and you have bleeding Kansas. You have all those new territories from the war with Mexico that are suddenly in, how are those going to be divided up? So there are so many issues, fugitive slave law, those pieces of the, of the compromise of 1850. I could go on and on and I will stop myself because people don't want to hear me talk. They want to hear you talk, but (laughs) how do their different opinions they must have differed sometime how on that issue of slavery how does king assert himself because he's kind of the junior partner the little bit of the junior partner in bosom friends naturally because he's just a vice president and buchanan is president so how does king assert himself and some of his views that were different from james buchanan how did he persuade him make this relationship work for him a little
1: bit so that he wasn't just the guy being used. Yeah, that's a great point, because if there's one issue that King stood bedrock on, it's the protection of slavery. I mean, I make the argument in the book towards the end that King's, King himself would have certainly sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War, because we see that members of his own family did. Uh, and it was a very painful subject for Buchanan to know that his dear, intimate friends own relatives and one of his nieces particularly were Confederates. And essentially after the war, they seemed to agree to just not talk about it, to try to reunify um, on the sort of the pre-war terms. But of course, slavery had always been the thing that had brought the financial and political success of people like William Rufus King. He's born into a slaveholding plantation in North Carolina. He dies in a slaveholding plantation with more than 400 enslaved people, we think. Uh, in King's Bend right outside of Selma, Alabama. So the day-to-day for King looks a little bit different than Buchanan, uh, although there's a moment where they share those same uh, kind of domestic terms, particularly around slaves in the boarding house of DC. Buchanan would have benefited from slave labor during his time in Washington in the boarding house. But on the issue of expansion for Alabama in 1850, King was actually considered a moderate. And he really did uh, worry about how the union would would survive the expansion addition of, of the states out of the Mexican session. He was in fact very much against uh, the acquisition of those territories for that exact reason. So King was farsighted to know that this political dynamite that they were sitting on, that is to say, the question of slavery's expansion would be something that could rip apart the Union. He probably didn't expect that it would be his old friend Buchanan at the helm when it happened. But then that's the irony of this relationship. They tried and tried to hold together the nation along the old terms, whereby slavery was going to be ensured by the Constitution for time immemorial. And King's life, therefore, would have been just incredibly changed and altered. We see that again in his descendants and what happens to them in Alabama, as it did for so many uh, white Southerners in the, in the immediate reconstruction period. What happens later on, what happens to um, people like William Rufus King is a transformation in the 19th century and arguably the 20th century. They still remain Democrats, but they work a union. They work out a different kind of relationship with their Northern counterparts, not on slavery, but on another war, another institution altogether, segregation. And it's gonna be these unequal terms that persist around the civil rights of African-Americans for another century past the relationship of Buchanan and King. And as I've been doing more research into the Democratic Party and its history, I find that Northern and Southern friendships of this kind um, are what helps to keep the party together. And it's 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 exactly this kind of, Alchemy that um, produces political victory occasionally for Democrats that Buchanan and King were the first to pioneer
0: I want to wrap up with a question about what I think everybody when they pick up the book is interested in and that's the personal life and that's yeah. not just because these are two men but that's that's why gossip magazines sell right unfortunately they don't have they don't have copies of well, back when Newsweek was an actual magazine and you'd pick it up or National Review or something or The Nation or on the way out, they have gossip magazines and people love gossip. For me, I never like to focus on on the, the person that gets shot or the person who has a private thing that people want to focus on. I like to focus on their career. That's what we tried to do today. And that's what you do in Bosom Friends Yep. For almost two centuries, we have had this tittering about their relationship, about Buchanan and King, were they or weren't they? And that that robs them of so much of their humanity, so much of their nuance, so much that they did accomplish and what they tried to accomplish. And we can learn from why they failed as well. But remember that they were real flesh and blood people. So I wanted to give you the final word on that. Why should readers pick up a copy of Bosom Friends and get to know these two politicians as more than just the butt of jokes, as more than just icons that are held up by people who hope that they were more than just bosom friends, why should they learn about what they did on the halls of Congress and in the White House and not just speculate on what they did behind closed doors? Well,
1: simply put, gossip is interesting. And you learn a lot about what people said and thought by reading the gossip rags. Uh, And I actually find that to be a real draw to the book for readers is that they learn how names were slung, how insults were hurled and how people responded to it. And Buchanan and King were conscious of the the language being used about them. And what they did was they took a higher ground. They didn't engage on the same level as was being sort of thrown at them. And that might be something to think about today in our modern politics, that it's gonna require thick skin. To be in politics at any time. It was true in the 19th century. It's certainly true in the 21st century. Maybe learning about how these two men managed their political careers and how they were able to overcome the gossip and the innuendo, regardless of what the historical record has to say about the relationship, we might take a kind of a lesson in that our own modern politics could learn from. And I think it's simply that there are those members of Congress who want to be about getting results. And there are those who are about making a name for themselves and a lot of flash and no substance. And perhaps we should be really focusing on those who were impactful and who really uh, did make a difference in American history.
0: Well, Professor Tom Belsersky, author of Bosom Friends, thanks so much for sharing the book with me today. There are some very very mean sometimes things people said about them at the time, some nicknames that we avoided using today. But Aunt Fancy, Aunt Nancy, these are the kind of things that call them their each other's wives, thing like that. It does tell us something. And you have certainly helped me to, to think of that today in a whole new light. Where if people are going to say things about you, sticks and stones, don't let it distract you from your greatest purpose. If you're going to fail, hey, maybe fail and be the best failure, like James Buchanan was. But at least you will have tried and you won't have let. You want to let the people calling you names get you down. I hope readers will pick up a copy of Bosom Friends. I really enjoyed it. I hope that my affection for James Buchanan, despite his shortcomings and failings, will be a little bit infectious. And I hope that your knowledge will pique people's interest, that they will want to pick up your book, learn a little bit more about this relationship and the America of the pre-Civil War. Best of luck with the book. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on, Dean. Again, the book is... Bosom Friends, The Intimate World, of James Buchanan, and William Rufus King. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode. By buying a book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. And by the way, I want a little bit of credit that I didn't once refer to this great book, Bosom Friends, as Bosom Buddies was some buddies, of course, was the Tom Hanks-Peter Scolari sitcom in 1980. And that wasn't easy. I hope that you'll credit me for that. That's my dedication to history, that I managed to completely keep Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari and their cross-dressing comedy out of this discussion about the president and vice president that you could see here behind me if you're watching on YouTube. My sincere thanks to Tom Balserski for going along with a really fun positive interview i wanted to have today talk about these guys as not just dusty figures in the past but real life flesh and blood human beings who helped shape the fate of the united states and played a role in the history that we've all lived and they still impact our lives today so i was really glad that he was game for all of that please do follow professor balsersky on social media at twitter instagram facebook and linkedin you can find all of those linked on that HistoryAuthor.com page for this episode, and you can find me at all those outlets as well. Plus, please do check out my columns in the Washington Times and subscribe to our YouTube channel, where I hope you'll subscribe to enjoy future time travel adventures like these. Plus, now and then, I've been doing some movie reviews called History Author Showtime, where I look into what Hollywood gets right and wrong about yesterday with an assist from top guests like Tom Belserski. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iArtRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Tom Belserski and the two men on the cover of his book, thanks so much for time traveling with us today.